0: Our daughter, Rebecca, has been tutoring this uh, little boy named Alexei for about five years. He's Russian. And when she first started uh, tutoring him in English, uh, he he spoke very little English. And some of you may have heard uh, or have experienced this, that English is an incredibly difficult language to learn. And that's because we have all of these rules that we continually break and these uh, wild uh, differences that are... Uh, difficult to navigate and so Lexi had to work through all of this like for example We've got words that sound exactly the same, but they mean different things like two two and two There there and there and then once uh, Alexi had to navigate those sorts of differences He had to contend with present tense past tense confusions like for example uh, the, the present tense for for fight versus the past tense fought then present tense, light, past tense, not lot, (laughs) lit. So Alexi's got to deal with this. And then once he started navigating that, teach, taught, preach, not prot. Uh, (laughs) And uh, then there's words that make no sense. Uh, Like, for example, hamburger has no ham. Pineapple has no pine or apple. Yeah, uh, you know. Imagine what it would have been like for little uh, Alexei to learn that a vegetarian means that you eat vegetables, and then one day he meets someone who says they're a humanitarian. Uh, <laughs> this is a difficult language, and then you've got to navigate. Every culture has, you know, their 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 idioms, and we have ours. Uh, what what's it going to be like for him the first time he hears somebody say? We've got to have a staff meeting at 2 o'clock. We have to deal with the elephant in the room. And it's going to be like, wow, this is an incredible place. Um, We know that an elephant in the room means there's this huge issue that has to be dealt with or spoken to. And our our text this morning comes from John chapter 21. This massive elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. Uh, The elephant being Peter's denial of Jesus. This is the text that we looked at last Sunday, and we're going to circle back around, and I'm actually going to take it further to the end of the chapter, but we're going to circle around and go more deeply into this and and look at how God's grace is put on display here um, for for Peter and then today for you and I. John chapter 21, starting in verse 9, I'm going to read to verse 25. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and fish was laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so he did the same with the fish. Now, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said this to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. And the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and so the disciple that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die, but if it will be my will that he remain until I come, what's it to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. Now, this morning, we're going to look at um, a beautiful pattern we see given to Peter here. Peter is called, cleansed, he's communed with, and then he's commissioned. And this calling, cleansing, communing, and commissioning, this is the shape of the gospel. This is the shape of Christ's work in Peter. It's the shape of God's work in our lives. It's actually what shapes uh, Christian worship. That's why for 2,000 years, and, and churches have you know, different f- forms of doing this, but all Christian worship really flows the same way, that we come and as we gather, God calls us and he cleanses us and he communes with, th- with us and then he commissions us. And I want us to kind of explore this this morning and be encouraged by it. But just before I do that, I want to um, make a quick mention uh, to perhaps be helpful for those of you who've been joining us exploring christian faith or new very new to the bible and uh or or maybe you've been in church for years and you have doubts about why you believe you know how we can believe this is true last week i went into some detail about how there's certain things that are written in the scriptures that uh literary scholars uh, tell us are there because they're like ancient footnotes to get us to see um this is not how you wrote ancient poetry or ancient mythology when you give details like there's 153 fish the boat was 200 cubits from the shore. Or Peter takes off his outer garment. All these details are, are there. They're mundane details that exist for the purpose of fact-checking. So I talked about that a little bit last week. But this morning, um, I, I want to point out that this is the third time that Jesus has appeared uh, after his resurrection to his disciples. Jesus walked the earth for 40 days and appeared to many people before his ascension. And by, by the time he ascended... Uh, the eyewitnesses of of Jesus were in the hundreds, so christian faith is not is not founded on a missing body theory it 's not a missing body. Um, what we believe what we believe because there was a resurrected body, and there was witnesses uh, to that resurrected body and um, There was one occasion in uh, around AD 59 to sixty two when the apostle paul was giving uh, he was actually arrested and he was on trial because he was preaching about this resurrection of of Jesus Christ. And there's two historical figures that uh, that he was standing in front of. He was standing in front of Porcius Festus, who was an imperial governor in Rome, uh, a political figure. And then he was also in front of, uh, with Festus, he was with uh, Agrippa, Marcus Julius Agrippa, who was a king that Rome appointed. And so you can go to any history book and you'll find both of these figures there. And you'll find that Paul appeared before these figures. And so what happens, the book of Acts records this, is Festus says to Paul, this whole resurrection that you're talking about is insane. I'm going to just quote for you Paul's response um, in Acts 26 about the resurrection being insane. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. Agrippa is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that the resurrection has not escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christ follower? And Paul, rep- Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, will become believers in Christ as I am, except for these chains. So, for those of you who are exploring Christian faith, as I unpack the rest of this text, that's really my, my prayer and my hope for you as well. Is that uh, short time or long, you would come to believe in Jesus Christ as we explore his goodness uh, here from this passage in John? So let's look at how Jesus calls and cleanses Peter. I'm going to move quickly through the first section of this because I did touch on some of it last week, but um, he calls him and he cleanses him. After this miracle of them catching all these fish, they come to the shore. And you find that they're at this fire. And I mentioned last week that even though the word fire appears in the Bible over 550 times, uh, only twice is is this uh, Greek word used in the New Testament, anthrakia which means a fire of coals. And the first time was when Peter was denying Jesus three times. And here, Jesus recreates the scene. And we look down on this fire of coals where where Jesus asks Peter you know, three times, uh, to essentially, uh, do you love me so that he can restore Peter? Um, So this is all very intentional and he does this because despite the fact that Peter said, I don't belong to him, I don't know him, Jesus is in scandalous grace saying, you belong to me and I know you. Um, And so the only reason, of course, that there's any fish at this uh, reconciliation fish fry is by the power of Jesus. And the same Jesus that filled those nets, fills his church, and 50 days after this all occurs, Peter will then be no longer fishing for fish but fishing for men and he'll be uh, preaching in Jerusalem and thousands and thousands of people uh, will come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of this. And so uh, Jesus resets the scene because he's meeting Peter's failure with forgiveness around a meal. And on Sundays when we gather around the Lord's table, our failure is met with forgiveness around a meal. And the good news of God's tremendous love and grace towards us, and we learn this from Lamentations chapter 3, is that every day there is an opportunity for our failure to be met with His forgiveness. That scripture in Lamentations 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercy never comes to an end. It is new every morning, great is His faithfulness. And so Jesus is moving towards Peter in this just undeserved grace. And he asks a question in verse 15. You'll see the question. He says, do you love me more than these? What a great question. Because I want you to notice that he starts, he starts the, with the restoration process with Peter's self-inflated view. Because before the crucifixion, at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, Peter's like, all of these guys might betray you. But I definitely will not betray you. Peter has a self-inflated view. You know, they may fail you, I will never fail you. And then of course, that's the exact thing that Peter goes on to do. So Jesus dials it right back to, to address this self-inflated view that he has of himself. How, is, how do you and I have self-inflated views? How do you and I look at other Christians, other believers around the room within our own little church at Redeemer? And have the comparison game and have self-inflated views. How are the ways that that manifests? Or perhaps we look at the church across the street and we have this ridiculous self-inflated view. And we say, well, they may be doing A, B, and C, but here at Redeemer where we would, the self-inflated view is poison, it's toxic. So so Jesus goes right back there and uh, because he's gonna begin this profound uh, healing. At the very first, at that first fire, uh, Peter put himself first, and he denied Jesus in order to save his life. And here at this fire, what Jesus is doing is he's healing and restoring so deeply that Peter will actually go on to preach Jesus even at the cost of his life. So let's move on from this calling and this cleansing to look at the communing, how this takes place with um, Jesus. Jesus takes Peter for, for a walk. You see it in verse 20, right? He says, "Peter, let's go for a walk." Notice Jesus does not hurry in his healing. Notice that he lovingly takes his time. And, he, and, and it's so interesting that when he takes Peter for this walk, he calls Peter by his old name. Three times he calls him Simon. Now, there's a, a, a beautiful significance here because when Peter uh, confessed that Jesus was the Christ, was the son of God, that's when Jesus gave him a new name. And he changed his name from Simon and he said, okay, now your name is going to be Peter in the Greek, which is Petros, which means rock. He says, now on this rock, I'm going to build my church. You can think of that as the rock of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. You can think about that as Peter, um, the actual f- f- you know, frail and uh, deeply flawed man that Jesus uses to build the, the, the church upon. Both ways, what we notice is that he calls him Simon three times. It's like Jesus is taking Peter back emotionally. It's like when you denied me three times, when you denied the Christ, it's like you reverted back to your old nature and you've denied me three times. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you back there emotionally so I can do a very deep and profound healing. And again, Jesus isn't vindictive in the way that he does any of this healing for Peter uh, or for you and I it is it is a, it is beautifully uh loving and intimate i want you to notice how this whole passage the way that god restored peter the way that he restores you okay the way that he uh calls and cleanses uh peter and the way that he calls and cleanses you it is wrapped in friendship it's wrapped in deep friendship and this is this is very significant this is unique to christian faith if you have friends who are uh buddhist or hindu and they talk about um, uh, spirituality, they're, not, they're never using deep, intimate, loving language. They're not using the language of intimacy and friendship because that's not in that context. You're, there's no you, there's no me, there's just us. We end, eventually escape this sort of cycle of reincarnation and become part of the ethereal part of the universe. I mean, that's the way in which their spirituality is in categories of sort of impersonal grandeur. But Christian faith is deep and intimate If you have friends who are Muslim, they will talk to you about how Muhammad wrote down the Quran and he gave uh, a number of uh, instructions through which you're supposed to obey these things to receive the acceptance of Allah so that in the end, at the end of your life, if the good outweighs the bad, then again, you're escaping planet earth and you're part of this ethereal place that is someplace else But at the end of the day, the language of of love and friendship, it's devoid of that because it's essentially religious rule keeping. And we could go on and on and on this morning about how world religions are are basically prophets and people saying, uh, here's the mechanism by which you find salvation. But what we find in Jesus is this deep love, this deep friendship, the creator God, the king, who is our friend, the transcendent, who is... Imminent. And the reason why this is so significant and huge is because it comes out very clearly, God manifest in Jesus, it comes out very clearly, his love and his affinity for you, even in the midst of your deep failure, okay? Look at, uh, well, you can't look at it because I didn't read it today, but I went to it last week. The way that Jesus calls them out of the water is he, he uses the most intimate language possible. He calls out to them and he says, uh, your English translations will save friends or children, but he doesn't the Greek is not Philadelphos, which is friends the the Greek word is paideia, which is where we get our English word pediatrician from so he says Paideia it's like it was a it was a it was an it an idiom for saying my. my it's slang really uh greek translator Greek translators will tell you it's like he's calling them like his most intimate kids it's like this loving uh, communication think of it this way you look at, at all these different zoom boxes we got all these cute little kids who earlier when susan was doing her uh, susan's doing the kids lesson and there's little kids running around and their faces get really close to the camera and i we all love it every single time a kid's face gets really close to the camera we think it's the cutest thing ever and we're just like oh i just want to bite them i just want to hug them i just want to that's the that's the tone of paidea that's what it is. It's, oh, I just love them. Oh, I just want to hug them. Oh, I just want to be with them. Oh, I can't. That's what it is. It's this deep friendship. And that's, that's how this whole thing begins. So this is the, the beautiful context of restoration. Um, when you have a, a week of worry and anxiety and failure, and you get just as caught up in the news feeds and, and <laughs> as everybody else, and it's like you forget that your life is in the hands of God because everybody's, you know, today is like, our lives are in the hands of the government, right? in the hands of the government. I don't know about you, my friends, but uh, when I have those moments that I forget I have a king, I forget whose life my hand's in, those moments, you feel uh, embarrassed and guilty at the futility of that sort of thing. And uh, sometimes when we, we fail, we feel like the, being around uh, church being around God, being around other Christians. That's the last place that we want to be. Uh, but the truth is when we feel most unqualified is when we are most welcome, that there is this deep and rich friendship and love with which he, uh, he reaches out. In fact, if you were to back up, you know, six chapters to John 15, Jesus says very explicitly, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. Servants don't know what their master is doing. And, um, and so Jesus is this friend to sinners, which thank goodness is good news because that's all of us. We let him go all the time. Uh, he does not let us go. And uh, when, you think about, uh, when you think about it, Peter betrayed him pretty, pretty bitterly. If, if you have family or friends or coworkers who have betrayed you, like that's a strong word. Like if you've ever felt betrayed, um, you're probably not moving towards those people you're probably revisiting those relationships, distancing yourself from the, like you're probably putting up, you know, you're probably like for my own mental health and safety, I need to actually create distance with these people. But I want you to see the otherworldly divine grace of Jesus for you and I. Um, You know, we punish people with silence. Uh, Jesus doesn't punish uh, Peter with silence. He pursues Peter with his just incredible grace. And and I also want you to notice in this, in this passage that the one who failed isn't even seeking restoration. Um, Jesus actually initiates the seeking. Jesus initiated the restoration. Now, as believers on this side of the cross who've placed our faith in Christ, we are called to confess and we are called to be very active in our desire for reconciliation, not only with God when we sin through confession, but also with each other to walk out that responsibility of walking in relationships with personal responsibility and, and demonstrating love. We're called to do those things. But the reason I'm hammering this is because I want us to consider, um, why any of us are in church today? You see, the only reason any of us are here is because of this radical grace. And that actually has a tremendous, uh, Effect on the kind of community and the uh, the faith community that it builds when all of us know that we're here not because of any sort of reason in us superiority, but that there's that there's a compassion for others. I actually have a visual. I mean, I think that there's a, a great reason why the Bible um, why the Bible calls us uh, sheep, and so I've just got a visual of it that I want to just share with you really quickly. So here's just a picture of. Uh, of your faith and um, Christ's grace in action for you. And this is kind of all of us. There we are. Thank you, God. Oh, Lord, I need you again. Okay, so just so we're all clear, (laughs) just so we're all clear on what our sanctification looks like. Okay, it's various versions of that. Some of you sheep jump back in the ditch every day or, or multiple times a day. Maybe some of you are really, really sanctified sheep and you only jump in the ditch every, six, every, every 36 hours. Good for you. But the point is, this is all of us. All of us are in need of, of God's great grace. And so this is the, the love with which Jesus comes, um, That though we are all wandering um, He comes to us and that is a tremendous hope for all of you who have children, who have been baptized and given the covenant sign of God's love and the covenant sign of God's love means he promises to not relent, to pursue his children and uh, that's good news for those of you who have children who have wandered, children who are wavering, children who are not worshiping today. This is good news uh, because God will not relent in his uh, constant pursuit of them. Because of his great love. And so that can be at the center of your prayers. Um, and if you want to fact check that kind of covenant commitment, you can just start at, um, uh, you can just start in Genesis when God gives a covenant sign to Abraham and read through to Malachi. And what you're going to find is ongoing undeserved pursuit. And so let's go to the final thing this morning, which, which is the commissioning. So he restores Peter. You see it in verses uh, 15 through 17 as he asks him to feed the sheep, right? He's, he's recommissioning Peter. The very one who failed to bear witness to Jesus is called to lead the church to bear witness to Jesus. Um, maybe for you know for one reason or another, you feel disqualified from being a minister. Maybe when I talk about being minister and I talk about us being um, ministers in this city, of course, in practical loving ways, we bring our gifts to bear in the city so that our workplaces and Wherever we have to be, happen to be, those places can flourish because we're agents of love and reconciliation and mercy and justice. So there's practical outworkings. But maybe you feel like you can't talk about your faith uh, because you've got some sort of a failure. Uh, you're somehow disqualified. And what this text gives you without apology is that there is um, nobody beyond the restoring, reinstating love of Jesus. There's nothing that you have done. Your failure, whatever it is, um, does not disqualify you from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and of God's grace. Your failure simply points to the fact that everyone, without exception, we're like those sheep, we need God's grace, and no one without exception is beyond the the reach or the grasp of God's grace. Nobody's so mature that you're, you've you graduated from the need of God's grace. Um. And some of you might feel like, well, I don't know that that's my gift. Um, Maybe there's certain kinds of people with certain gift mix and they're ministers, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, these are the kinds of people that share their faith. No, that's simply not true. There's not a certain kind of person that shares their faith. All kinds of people share their faith. After Jesus um, gave forgiveness and healing to the woman at the well who had prostituted herself multiple times. And after he gives her this grace and forgiveness, she goes and she becomes an evangelist and she goes into the town and she says to everybody, come meet the one who told me everything I ever did. The actual subject of her own shame became the centerpiece of her testimony. So there's not a certain kind of person that shares the gospel. Every kind of person who comes to Christ is called to share the gospel and empowered to share the gospel. And and it's worth noting that Peter himself, you know, it's not like Jesus picked 12 Pharisees and said, I'm gonna take these guys and convert them because they got really great temple experience. And lo and behold, they've also memorized the Torah. So I'm (laughs) gonna just convert these guys. He doesn't do that. Peter is a fisherman. When he found Peter, Peter's singing a sea shanty, right? Peter's like, I'd rather be around fish than people. I'd rather be around fish than people. I'd rather be around fish than people. Fish don't have no problems. That's what Peter was up to when he found Peter. And he calls Peter to do this. And so in the same way that Peter is called and cleansed, communed, commissioned, so are you and I. by, By God's grace which renews the mind and it reorients the appetites and reshapes the appetites and it alters our, the, direct, the very direction of our, of our lives. Peter goes from this position of protecting and hiding to ministering and, and feeding. And so Jesus says something then that, that goes on to strike the ear, you know, and make you swallow hard in verse 18. He gives this prophecy about how Peter would die. He says, you know, when you're young, you would dress yourself and go wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you're gonna stretch your arms out and you're not going to be able to go where you want. And someone else is going to dress you. And he's talking about how Peter would eventually be crucified. And Peter, of course, did not believe he was worthy to be crucified in the way of Christ. So history records he was actually crucified upside down. And, and you would think that hearing that, you would run from Jesus. But the work the work is so deep. The healing is so deep. He hears that. And he is a, bears witness to Jesus. And further to this, what I think is significant about it... um is that when when he says this to Peter and he calls him it's not just this awful dark prophecy, prophecy i think peter's considering the source the one who's defeated death the one who is standing before him the one who is saying come let's go for a walk follow me death is not final follow me what can man do to you you, you i mean when you <laughs> when you're all when you're already dead um, so spiritually speaking, when you're already dead and united to Christ, the one who has died and risen again and your life is wrapped up in him, then you become a, a quote unquote uh, dangerous person because you're not so fearful that you are caught up within yourself and wrapped up in yourself. You're actually very, very free now to give your life away boldly, to love and to care, to share this gospel um, with others. And I think that's what we end up, well, I don't think, I know, that's what we end up seeing Peter and all the disciples um, going on to do. Mm-hmm. Now, G.K. Chesterton was a theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he used to say, you know, one of the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. You know, you've got all these lousy Christians doing terrible things in the world. No doubt about it. Maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't know that I have a problem with God or with Jesus or with this amazing grace you're talking about. It's this messed up church I don't want to associate with or be a part of. And um, I mean, no no doubt about it that even since the disciples, God has never had great PR. Here's what I would encourage you to understand is that the message of the gospel is not look at the church and how cleaned up we are. The actual message of the gospel is look at Jesus and, and look at his love and look how amazing he is. And uh, not only that, but there are many examples of beautiful renewal that the Spirit does in the church. And so, yes, of course, there's endless uh, black marks that we can, we can look at, but there's also glorious pictures of renewal that we see. And whenever you see an institution or a pastor or a, a, someone naming, claiming to be a Christian who does something that's nothing like Jesus, I, I think that's the point. That what you're seeing is not faithful Christianity, but then what you're actually disgusted by is a deviation from uh, true Christianity, true Christ likeness. So I'd encourage you to sort of um, to consider that if it's been a struggle, because the temptation might be, okay, well I'm good with Jesus, but I don't need the church. Hey, great with Zoom, now I never need to be a part of a church again. I'll just you know listen to a podcast and call that Christianity. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not even close to Christianity, because look at what Jesus is doing here. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, shepherd. This is community language. This is family language. What Jesus is doing is he's reinstating what God wanted in Genesis, which is a people, a family that he is at the center of. That's where this whole thing is headed. So Christianity cannot be walked out faithfully in isolation, because, you know, there's all these dirty sinners around you in the church, and... And the guy in the pulpit is a mess as well, um, which I am, which we all, which every pastor is in their own way. And so you can't just say, well, I'm going to just distance myself um, from all these terrible sinners and I'm just going to walk out an individual spiritualism because that's just not what Jesus is reinstating here. He's, he is actually reinstating the family. And, uh, and, uh, right at the end, as I, as I prepare to close this sermon, notice that as they're going for the walk, um, Peter looks back and he sees John back there. John wrote this gospel. And uh, my imagination always goes wild with what that moment must have been, <laughs> been like for Peter. What are, you, what are you writing down right now? I just want to see what you wrote real quick. I, you already wrote that you beat me to the tomb. Well, what are you writing right now? I want to know what are you saying. So Peter looks back and, and it's interesting because here Jesus is in the, right in the middle of saying, follow me. It's like he's saying like, eyes front. And what is Peter's eyes? Peter's eyes go back. What about that guy? This gritty, honest picture of the struggle of sanctification, right, that we're all in, of growth, of spiritual growth. And uh, it's like Jesus then says to him, you know, don't spend any time uh, worrying about what I'm doing in the life of somebody else. Don't spend any energy sitting in judgment over what you think I ought to be doing in the life of somebody else. Don't wonder about it. You uh, remain committed. You just love them and mind your own sanctification. Focus on what it is that I am uh, doing in you, Peter. And so to conclude uh, today's sermon, I'll use the conclusion of this gospel. Now, there are many other things uh, that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. And this is true because, of course, the rescuing, uh, renewing work, the Father planned and the Son accomplished and the Spirit continues today. And so the works of Jesus are still being written today in you and in I and in the city and in all who he would call to himself. Amen. So may we see that we are his workmanship and we've been created in Christ Jesus for these good works. May we be ministers and may we um, <clears throat> go out with great joy as those who've been called and cleansed, those who commune with God. May we go out as those who are commissioned. Let's pray.